Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the invitation that you give us to come to your altar, to come to your throne, your throne of grace where we can find mercy and help in our time of need. And Lord, I don't know all the needs represented here tonight, but wherever there's a group of people, I'm sure there's a group of needs. And so we bring them before you. We lay them at your feet, trusting you to take care of each and every one. We pray, God, as we look into your word, that a heart and spirit of worship would continue among us, that we would have hearts that are open to receive what you have for us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, we pray. So last week, that's a lie, two weeks ago, we saw Samuel select Saul to serve as king. I did that on purpose. Did you like my alliteration? We saw Samuel select Saul to serve as king over Israel by the prophetic guidance of God. In this process, Saul started off well. I mean, he started off with humility and he started off um, really with, well, there was a level of unbelief, but, y you know, he didn't start off as a pompous jerk who tried to kill the people who helped him. Don't worry, he'll become that guy soon. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I've already started looking at next week. He becomes that guy in the next chapter, uh, not 12, but 13. Uh, it doesn't, it just doesn't, uh, oh, wait, sorry. Oh, no, yeah, in chapter 13. Gets worse in chapter 14, and it's just downhill from there. Um, but remember, there were a few last week. We saw this in verse 27 of chapter 10. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. We're going to see those guys again before the end of tonight. So we pick up in chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the man of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. They said that to this Nahash fellow. 
So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So this is Saul's first battle as the king of Israel. So you get this guy, Nahash, and this just boggles my mind. Nahash comes. He clearly has a military advantage, or the men of Jabesh Gilead would not have said, hey, um, let's make a deal. And Nahash said, okay, well, here's your choice. Uh, I'll make a covenant with you, but I'm going to rip out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on the entire nation of Israel. So he clearly had a military advantage. Well, they didn't want to die. So they said, well, can you give us a week and we can see if anybody will come and kill you? That is exactly what they asked. Now, I don't know if Nahash, if this is some kind of etiquette to war back then, or if this was Nahash was just so prideful that he believed no one in Israel would come to help them. So he says, sure, go for it. Send some guys out. See what happens. What a gentleman. So the messengers come to um, Gibeah, where Saul's at. They tell the people what's going on, and they all cry out. Saul comes in on his way from the field, and I think this is really interesting. Um, he was in the field at the beginning of his reign as king. He just went back to work. Now, the last time we were in 1 Samuel, we talked about, well, he hid when Samuel tried to coronate him as king. Was that hiding because of humility, or was that hiding because he was trying to hide from the role that God had called him to? I don't know. Either way, he comes in, he goes, hey, what's up? And they tell him about Nahash and Jabesh Gilead and the eye gouging and all that stuff. And it says that the Spirit of God came upon him and his anger was greatly aroused. And I appreciate that. Because not all anger is bad. We know from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, uh, somebody might want to check on this. I think it's verse 16 or 17. I know it's Ephesians chapter 4, but I can't remember the exact verse. That be angry we are instructed to be angry, but do not sin. So anger in and of itself is not necessarily sin. Was I right? My wife is looking. Yeah. Neither of those 426? <laughs> there, I had a six. It's an Ephesians 4. Yeah. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. The Bible tells us we can be angry, but not sin. Here, Saul gets filled with the Holy Spirit and then gets angry. So I would justify this or explain this as a righteous anger or a holy anger. And you know, I, I think there are things in our world that we're allowed to have that kind of anger towards. Um, we, we could list a ton of them, but things like abortion or the mistreating of marginalized people, or the abuse of children, or, right? There, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can be righteously angry about. Now, does that give us the right to sin? Can we go around uh, you know, murdering abortion doctors? Well, of course not. But murder is bad. Um, I know, kind of surprising, um, but we're not from Chicago, where apparently murder is okay. But here and in the rest of the world, murder is bad. 
Did you hear about Chicago this weekend? 37 shootings, eight deaths. One of them was a toddler. Oh, because they have gun control laws. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get myself in trouble. But no, because they, they've cut back their police force. They, they went full head on into all kinds of stuff. And they just don't have the manpower to stop it. It's unfortunate. So murder is wrong. That's the point I was getting at. This anger was not. Right? He kills his oxen, cuts them into pieces, sends them throughout Israel and says, if you don't come, this is what we're going to do to your oxen. So 330,000 people show up. Apparently, they didn't want their oxen to be killed. But what I find interesting is only a king could do that. So he is stepping into his role as king of Israel. Now, Saul sends messengers back to Jabesh Gilead and tells them help is on the way. And they, in verse 9, said, it says, the Bible tells us, they were glad. Well, yeah, your choices are death or to have your right eye gouged out. Saul says, nope, we got 330,000 guys coming to rescue you. They were glad is probably a bit of an understatement. But notice what the men of Jabesh Gilead do in the next verse. So the men of Jabesh Gilead said, so this would have been, they said this to Nahash, hey, tomorrow we'll come out and you can do whatever you want. So Nahash is now thinking, see, nobody came to help them. I knew that, right? If it was his pride or his patience, I don't know. But I, I knew nobody was coming to help him. This will be great. Tomorrow I, I get to take this city. Verse... 12. Oh, wait, no, verse 11. Sorry, it started in verse 11 that we read. So it was the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning. So they, had a, they marched all night to get there. And it said they killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who were alive um, weren't together, right? There were no two of them that stayed together. So the, the, the panic, and as they ran away and, and whatnot, there weren't two of them that got to stay together. So we get to verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said Saul shall reign over us? Bring, oh, I read that backwards. Who is he who said shall Saul reign over us? There was a question mark at the end of the sentence and I didn't ask a question. <laughs> Sorry. Shall, who are the men who said shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. What does Saul say? Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they get back, and the men who, from chapter 10, verse 27, didn't want Saul to be king, the soldiers say, let's bring those guys out and lop their heads off. Because clearly, Saul is our king. And Saul, again, doing pretty good. Right? He says, no, you're not going to do this. He recognizes that it's God who brought this salvation to Israel. He doesn't take the credit for himself. In a few chapters down the road, after David kills Goliath, when they start singing, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, well, then Saul's all of a sudden going to get all kind of jealous and angry. I read an interesting quote, and I want to say it was by G.K. Chesterton. 
And the quote goes, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. Now, we should care who gets the credit because we want God to get the credit. We want God to get all the glory. But if all I'm trying to do is do things so people know me, they know my name, ah, no, I don't care if people know my name. I want them to know his name. And Saul, doing good here, right? Like I said, slippery slope, chapter 13, goes downhill real fast. But we're not there yet. Third, he instructs the people to go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. Actually, Samuel does that. And they worship God. There they made sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel greatly rejoiced. So now Saul is officially king, right? They had mentioned it, but now sacrifices. He won his first battle. All the men there are rejoicing. They are following him. Now he's king. But we should heed this warning for ourselves. Because a good start does not guarantee a good finish. I didn't mean to look at you, Aaron, but um, I was like, a good start doesn't mean a good finish, Aaron, right? That was not my intent. I just happened to be looking at you when I said it. But it applies to all of us. Paul warns us of this in Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So when it comes to our salvation and our walk with the Lord, we begin because the Spirit of God draws us to, to himself, offers us the free gift of salvation, and when we respond to that by believing, even the gift of belief, the gift of faith, is a gift from God to believe, right? We make the choice, but it's a gift. It's all a gift. So right there, we begin in the Spirit. So why would five years, ten years, twenty years later, you go, all right, Lord, now I'm going to take over. You just watch. Oh, come on. Right? That's not, that's not going to go well. Right? The people who play pickleball with me know this. What happens when I get to the 10th point and I'm serving and I, I look across the court and I say, now watch, this serve is going to win the game. And Aaron loves it when I say that because every single time, almost every single time, I hit it into the net, I hit it out, <laughs> right? Pride comes before a fall. And I know that and I'm, I'm, I'm more trying to be snarky than prideful. But nevertheless, it happens a lot. Why would we be so foolish? Luke 9.62, Jesus said, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I love that verse. Because it means once you start with Christ, why would you look back longingly on your own life? We talked about this greatly as the, as the Israelites came out of Egypt. They kept looking back. Oh, in Egypt... We had three square meals a day, plenty of exercise. It was paradise. We were in slavery, as VeggieTales so famously put it. But right as you read the account in the book of Exodus, even up into Numbers, what happened? Why did you, did you bring us out in the desert because there weren't enough graves in Egypt for all of us? It would have been better for us to die as slaves in Egypt than to die out here of thirst. Right? No. Why would you look back? Why would you look back? Hebrews 3.6 reminds us that Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. 
Now, I know throughout the book of 1 Samuel, I have been building up Saul's downfall, right? We're going to take a little bit of a break from that as we get into chapter 12. But one of the things that we'll see when we get to chapter 13 that is such a sad thing, Samuel will look at Saul and, and tell him, God wanted to establish the kingdom under you forever. And now you've lost it. And just what a sad testimony. It, it harkens back, I wanted to use the word hearken, harkens back to when we studied Samson. Right? All that wasted potential because of pride and a host of other things. Chapter 12. Now, Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now, here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed and before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. So, this chapter begins with now. This is part of chapter 11. It really should be. As soon as they were rejoicing, making all these sacrifices, Samuel turns around and goes, all right. How many of you have anything to say against me? So this was part of his address. And it does end up actually being Samuel's last address to the nation as a whole. His ministry isn't over yet. He has more to do. Um, right? There's a whole other book named after him. But this is his really last address. From here on out, uh, Saul takes over. Now, the first portion of his address, I love. He says, bear witness to my integrity. Right? Did I ever take anything from anybody? But did I ever take a bribe? Did I ever steal from you? Did I ever pervert justice? And they said, no. And he said, fine, your witness. Your witness before me, your witness before God that I never did any of this. And they said, yes. We're a witness. The people recognize this. And I love that kind of integrity. That's the testimony I want. I want people, if somebody talks about me behind my back, that they have a really hard time finding something to say that's negative. Right now, I mean, you know, we live in the real world. and. <laughs> People are going to say negative things about us. That's just the way it goes. And Peter tells us, well, it's okay if we suffer for doing good. If you suffer for doing evil, you deserve it. But if you suffer for doing good, then you're glorifying God through your life, through your suffering. So, I, I mean, I understand the reality of that, but I do. I want, I want people to have to make stuff up about me. I've had that happen. We were, I was talking about that with, with the elders today. Uh, years ago, I was at a different church. And um, I left. It's a long story. I'm not going to tell it all now. Most of you know it anyway. Um, and I got a call from, from somebody. They said, I got somebody from, from that church gave me this letter that they say you wrote. And it was laced with profanity and all kinds of horrible, horrible, horrible things. And the person on the other end of the line said, I know you didn't write that. 
I said, thank you. <laughs> I didn't write that. And uh, they said, well, what should I do? I said, well, if they gave you a copy, throw it away. You know, I, I, do, you know and I don't, don't do anything. God's going to take care of it. And here we are, four and a half years later, and he has. Now, I say I don't rejoice over that, but he's taken care of it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 tells us this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. What are we called to? Jesus came to save us, and because of that, we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and instead we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly. And we are to be zealous for good works as we look for Jesus' return. That's how we should live, right? Are we going to do it perfectly? Probably not. All right, definitely not. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, by the work of his grace, by the guidance of his word, we can live lives that are sober, righteous, and godly because of him, not because of ourselves, right? Who, having begun in the spirit, is now going to be made perfect in the flesh. We just talked about that, right? Not on our own, in his grace and in his power. But it can be done. Not that we would ever attain sinless perfection, but we can live lives that honor our Savior. And when we do blow it, we repent and go back to living lives that honor our Savior. Verse 6, his address continues. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal, right? That's uh, Gideon, uh, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. So, this brief rehearsal of Israelite history, right? It goes all the way back to Joseph, then Moses, then Aaron, then the judges, all the way up to himself, because remember, Samuel was the last judge. This rehearsal points out a very simple truth. They always caused their own trouble by their own sin. Every time. They were delivered from said trouble when they repented and cried out to the Lord. Every 
single time. Now, when they were finally pulled out of the land, taken into captivity, well, it's because they refused to repent. They got to a place where they, they had become so engrossed in their sin that they refused to repent. And God said, fine, then you're done. But I've said this so many times. We must never blame God for our decisions and our own mistakes, something the Israelites did quite often. But when we make a mistake, not if, when we repent. If that mistake gets us into trouble, well, we may have to deal with some of those consequences. But as we pray and we cry out to God, he's going to get us to the other side. He's always faithful and always compassionate to do so. Verse 13. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. I got it a little bit ahead of myself. I should have stopped at verse 13. So Samuel exhorts them. I love this. I love this. Here's your king. This is what you do. You and the king fear, serve, and obey God. Things are going to be all right. If you don't fear, serve, and obey God, things ain't going to be all right. The history that I just recited to you, that's going to happen again. But I do want you to notice that the authority stops with God. Right? The authority doesn't stop with Saul. The authority doesn't stop with Samuel. It doesn't stop with the priests. Because no human authority can be effective without being under another authority. We know, right? Look at a dictator. When a dictator has nobody to answer to, what do they do? Whatever they want. And how does that usually turn out? Right? Badly. You, you know, we've seen this. Um, we, we've seen this in the business world. Remember Enron? Right? Their, their CEO and their board had absolutely no accountability and, and, and destroyed the lives of thousands of people. When there's no authority or when someone is under no authority, they're going to become corrupt. So Samuel is reminding them, you people and the king, right? You people, you're under the king. You king, you're under the authority of God. Because if not, things won't go well. And this is important for us to remember. Remember? Remember. For example, husbands are the head of the home, but only as they are submitted to God. Right? The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. But if the husband is not submitting to the Lord, then the wife must submit to God. Not always easy. Right? Should the wife still submit to her husband? The best she can. Until the husband wants her to sin. And then we must obey God rather than man. So if you have a husband, um, okay, well, that's, that's kind of a moot point for the current crowd. But um, that's right. Listen to your husband, woman. Um, that was to my wife. I call her woman as a term of endearment. It's okay. Um, but if you, if you have a wife whose husband is trying to lead her into sin, she doesn't have to submit to that sin. 
right? If he's not leading her into sin, then that's different. In the church, God has given pastors and elders authority. So now it applies to all y'all. You best listen up. But only, only as we are submitted to the authority of God. And even then, we are accountable to you as the body of Christ. Because if a pastor ever thinks he is the head of anything, well, he's an idiot. Right? I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. He is my head before I am head of my home. He is our head as a church. And if any of us ever forget that, well, then we're done. All human authority needs to be under the headship of Christ. Notice the exhortation. Three things. Fear, serve, and obey. Fear. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. Right? There you go. That's what we're supposed to do. Fear God and do what he says. The most important thing he says is for us to believe in Jesus Christ. And a lot of people really like to downplay the idea of godly fear. Oh, what what it means is reverence, and so you have to respect God. Does it mean reverence? Of course it does. But you know what else it means? Fear. Jesus himself told us, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Right? There's only one who can do that, and that's God. And this idea of fear is not this idea that we need to be afraid that he's just waiting to zap us to death or something, but it's this idea of his pure holiness. Do you remember when Peter, uh, Jesus, preached in his boat? And he says, you know, put out a little deeper and let down the net. So he says, okay. He kind of argued a little bit, but then he did it. And he caught this huge catch of fish that they had to call the other boat over to help him get it to shore. What did Peter do? He fell down before Jesus and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That is a true fear of God. Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his book, he said, I live among a people of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean lips. Well, I can't be here. And so the angel brings the coal over, touches it to his lips, And God declares him clean. But he recognized, he saw God seated on his throne. He was like, I'm not supposed to be here. That is a proper fear of God. We are to serve. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Right? If you're a follower of Christ, You should be serving him. And you should be serving him to honor him, not because of anybody else. Not to please men, not to get your name in lights, not so people recognize your efforts, but so that we can receive a reward from him. Because I tell you what, and I'll be honest, I, I, I appreciate it when people encourage me or are supportive of me or compliment me. I mean, I appreciate that. Somewhere in the back of my head every time, I'm like, you know what? You just stole a little bit of my reward. I don't really think that's true, but you see pastors, politicians, uh, all kinds of people who get in trouble because they want to please people. And what happens when we try to please people? 
you're always going to let someone down. You can't please everybody. We just finished watching a, a sitcom called Superstore. I don't recommend it. Um, actually, it, it was funny, but there's, there's some questionable material. But my favorite character in the whole show was the store manager, Glenn. He's a Christian uh, and, and, and not, not shy about it in the show. That's why I really loved the character. He had some great one-liners that I just thought was fantastic um, that I will not repeat here, um, but they were funny. Uh, but he was a people pleaser, constantly trying to make all of his employees happy. So if one employee came to him, he'd try to make them happy. Then another employee would come with the exact opposite and try to make them happy. And what happens? Well, in the end, nobody's happy. At the end of the day, I love you all, but I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to please God. And hopefully that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to tell you, you're not here to make anybody else happy. You're here to please God. Lastly, obey. John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He, does not, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So does this mean we have to keep his word in order to be saved? No, you all know better than that. We can't love him until we're saved. And if we're saved and we love him, what are we going to do? We're going to keep his word. And if we're not keeping his word, and again, I'm not talking about making a mistake. I'm not talking about doing something stupid or even doing a series of something stupid. I'm talking about living in unrepented sin. That person who says, well, I can do this and it's okay, that's not a person who knows the Lord. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but Jesus said it, not me. So I'm okay with repeating it. We fear God, we serve God, and we obey God. These are all connected. And this is what we are called to as followers of Christ. Hebrews 12, 28 sums this up. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's actually uh, this tattoo. Phobos, Theos, Echo, Charis. Fear God, have grace. Verse 16 of chapter 12. Sorry, that was kind of a long section. Now therefore, stand and see this. I do love this part. See this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. I'm not saying I really want to do this, but I really want to do this. I really want someone to look at me and go, you know, I'm not sure I believe your gospel preaching. Okay, fine. The, Lord is, the Lord's going to strike you with lightning. You're going to live, but you're going to know it's him. Right, Lord? Right there, that guy. I'm, I'm just saying, I think that would be so cool. There's a reason God 
wouldn't answer that prayer for me because there'd be a lot of crispy people. <laughs> I just there, there would be. Sorry, it's true. Um, but when, when he does this and it happens, I want you to notice that the sign was meant to confirm the word. The sign was meant to confirm the word. And we see this all throughout scripture. God works miracles quite often, not always, but quite often, he works those miracles to confirm his word. We see it throughout the ministry of Jesus, right? The, the man with the four friends, the paralytic that they lowered down. I'm sorry I don't have references for all these, but they're not in my notes. Um, but the paralytic that, he let, that the four friends let down through the roof, yeah, your sins are forgiven you. Right? And all the Pharisees thought, they didn't say it, they thought. He can't say that, only God can say that. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, because he's God, he can do that, says, why do you say in your heart that I can't do this? But to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sin, well, he does ask the question, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and take up your bed and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. No one can prove that it didn't happen. But he goes, so, but I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to do this. And he looks at the guy and says, stand up. And the guy stands up. He picks up his bed and he walks out. And the people, you know, the Pharisees uh, believe him after that, right? No, they plot to kill him. But the miracle confirmed the word. Verse 19, very interesting verse. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They recognize their mistake, but do you notice what's missing? There's no repentance. Oh, they don't want to die, right? Fair enough. They just saw what God did at the word of Samuel. They don't want, they don't want that, but they don't repent. They don't look at Samuel and go, you know what? We have made this mistake. We were wrong. We don't want a king. We want to serve the Lord and him only. How do we fix it? Right? They, none of that. They just like, um, we don't want to die. Will you pray for us? And I love Samuel's response in verse 20. So Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. <laughs> Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So I, I just love Samuel's response because it's a response of comfort and a response of exhortation. So first, you don't have to fear. Yeah, you're all a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. We've established that. But if you don't turn aside from following the Lord and you serve him with all your heart, it's going to be okay. I love the compassion of God here. Yeah, you did wrong, but you can follow me. 
Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and I love this picture because I've been that person. I've been that person where I was afraid. I, I, my sin was great, and I knew it. I knew I was wrong. I knew I had fallen off the deep end and didn't know how to come back. And God brought me back, and he said, okay, from here on out, follow me. Okay. You know, until the next time I did something really stupid. It's kind of a pattern with us as human beings. But what equals that pattern, as I mentioned earlier, when we cry out to him, what does he do? He forgives us. He delivers us. We know true repentance has proved change. But he also knows we're dust and that we're kind of dumb. Do not turn aside, for then you'll go after empty things which cannot profit. And I love this. And we've hit this before, but I think it bears reminding that when we do not follow after and fill our lives with the things of God, then we will go after unprofitable, harmful, and empty substitutes. Remember Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We were created with a need for God in our lives. That need is met as the Holy Spirit applies the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to our lives. And that need is continually met as we abide in him, as we walk with him, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we obey his commands by the power the Holy Spirit provides. And so if we're not following him, we're following something. And whatever that is, is going to be unprofitable every single time he says the lord's not going to forsake his people for his great name's sake because it pleased the lord to make you his people even when we are foolish he will not forsake us how amazing of a thought is that romans 8 31 through 39 hebrews 13 5 tells us that the lord will not leave us or forsake us that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us because he has chosen us as his people. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. We talked about this a lot, right? What we ask in his name, we ask according to his will. But when we choose to respond to the invitation God gives us through his grace to salvation in Jesus Christ, we find out that we are chosen and appointed and predestined and elected and all those fun words that the Bible uses. But what an amazing thought. He has chosen us and he will not abandon his choice. Oh, it's so beautiful. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. I love this. Uh, in Psalm 99, verse 6, uh, we read that Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Samuel was known as a man of prayer, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to sin 
by not praying for you. Yeah, you did me wrong by asking for a king. Yeah, you, you did God wrong by asking for a king. But God's not going to leave you, and I'm not going to stop praying for you. First Thessalonians reminds us to pray without ceasing. Um, it's important for us to be people of prayer, and he promises to teach them the right way to go. I love this heart of Samuel. I want that to be my heart, not just as a pastor, but as a follower of Christ. I want to love people enough to pray for them, even when they do me wrong. I want to love people enough to share the truth of God's word with them, even if they, I know they're not going to listen. Because that's, I, I believe that's the heart of God. And that's what we see in Samuel. And that's what I want. And he closes up, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Right? This is our positive motivation. We don't do these things to get saved, but because we are saved, the love of Jesus Christ becomes our motivation. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that. So we fear the Lord, we serve him in truth, we do it with all our heart. Positive motivation. You love the Lord? Then fear him, serve him, and obey him. That's what Jesus told us. But then he says, well, you know, I'm going to give you a negative uh, motivation as well. But if you don't, right, if you do so wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Right? So if the positive motivation isn't enough, here's a little negative motivation. When we do wickedly, there will be consequences. You ever notice, I remember when my kids were little, we were talking about this, Leah and I, when we were shopping the other day. We were wandering around the store. And to this day, our kids, even at their age, if they come shopping with us, will say, I've been good at the store. Do I get a candy bar? Because when they were little, we would tell them, if you can go through the whole shopping trip without complaining, without whining, right, you do really good, when we're done, we'll buy you a candy bar. Now, we were broke, so we would buy one candy bar that they would all split. Um, but that was the deal. Positive motivation. Sometimes positive motivation didn't work, and they would throw a fit in the store, and um, there would be a consequence for that. Negative motivation, usually applied to the buttock region. But nevertheless, positive and negative motivation, right? We have the same thing. We're told in Galatians chapter 6 that God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we reap. But what do we want to reap? Do we want to reap a spiritually abundant life? Then great, so do the Spirit. Do we want to reap corruption? Then so do the flesh. Positive and negative motivation, same for us. All right, well, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to get a bit of a time jump. A couple years will go by. Um, and Saul jumps on the downhill slide to his own downfall. I, I mean, he just, Saul is one of those guys, right? When he does it right, he does it right. But when he does it wrong, he does it really wrong. I can relate to that. But that's what we'll see next week. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the lessons that you teach us through your word. Give us God, grace to internalize these things, to apply them to our lives, that by the power of your spirit, we would walk them out on a daily basis. Help us, Father, to, to fear you, to serve you, to obey you, to be people of prayer, to follow after you and not turn from the right or to the left. God, let, let it be the positive motivation that encourages us, that we know that when we follow you, you're going to take care of things. And help us, Lord, because I know from personal experience 
that we don't always follow you the way we should. When we do, make those mistakes, Father. Just bring us back to you. Help us come back to you, knowing that you will not forsake your chosen. In Jesus' name, amen.